AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And this is the prologue on America's Web Radio, a weekly program bringing you introductions to writers and books you may not be familiar with. My name is Doug Dahlgren. I'll be your host for this next hour. I'm an author myself. I've got eight fiction novels available. They're action thrillers, some you just might enjoy. You can learn more about them through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, all the online, online sites, and, of course, you can go to my website, DougDahlgren.com. Now, we call the show The Prologue because that's what it is. It's an introduction. And while our introductions are mainly to, of writers, we love to bring you interesting people with just a good story to tell from whatever field or endeavor they might be involved with. Now, I hope you have a pen and a pencil handy because throughout this hour, there will be information that you just might want to make note of, like this, for instance. If you or someone you know has that book or that interesting story that just needs to be told, please reach out to me through email, and there's two ways you can do that. There's Doug at AmericasWebRadio.com or Doug at DougDahlgren.com. I'd love to speak with you or your friend about them being on a future program, so reach out to me. We'd also like to hear from you about what you think of the program. So use those email addresses and just tell us you like the show or maybe you like another host or whatever it is that we can do to improve things around here. We would love to hear from you. Our guest this hour is a returning award-winning author. Her novel, Shorter's Way, won the 2014 IPI, that's the Independent Publishers Award, for Southeastern Regional Fiction. In 2015, she brought us the exciting book, Waterproof Justice, a novel that carried the readers to old New Orleans in the 1940 era. She's here in studio today to tell us about her latest novel, Crossing the Moss Line. Before we bring her on, I want to take just a minute and mention a couple of groups of listeners that we here at America's Web Radio, and particularly here on the Prologue, are very proud to have. First, it's our folks serving in the armed forces of this country all around the world, working hard to keep us safe back here at home. Now, we often take freedom for granted, but we really shouldn't. It's bought and paid for daily by the men and women in uniform, and we certainly want to thank each and every one of them for what they do. I also want to mention the first responders who are here at home in your local towns and cities, wherever you live. That's those police, fire, EMT people, the ones that rush to your aid, though they don't know you whenever you need help. Don't forget these brave men and women who, on a daily basis, put their lives in danger to help people they don't even know. Thank you for being there, and thank you for what you do. Our novel today is by the award-winning author, Grace Hawthorne. Famous for her descriptive period pieces, she again takes us to the 1940s this time to an island off the Georgia coast. It's an island with both history and mystery. The book is Crossing the Moss Line, and this is your prologue. The Geechee people have been on the island for generations. Others have passed by the area through the slave trade markets, but the folks on Geechee have stayed separate from this. They were freed during the Civil War period and managed to stay as free people on the island. Ebo Island was not far from a landing point for the slave trade, located at Dunbar Creek on the much larger St. Simons Island. Ebo was home 
to Bird and Bird's family. It's all the home he'd ever known. Now, Bird has a gift. He wishes to use that gift to help his family. But a mischievous son of a local mayor returns from a military school with a grand idea, one that changes everything. Along this way, and to some surprise, a mysterious mansion is found on the island and is found to be occupied by two elderly sisters. Some in the community seek to help them. Others look for ways to exploit the situation. Intrigue, missing persons, mystery guests all play a part in the story of Ebo Island, and you can feel yourself a part of it by simply crossing the Moss Line. Author Grace Hawthorne is here with us. How are you this morning, Grace? I'm good and glad to be back. Well, great to see you again. Uh, This is novel number three that we've been able to discuss. Congratulations. Thank you. Now, I want to allow, I hope you'll allow me to remind the listeners that your background in writing is much more than just the three novels that you have out. It comes from a uh, high school column on fashion. (laughs) That's where you started and even went through writing text for opera and some lyrics for the TV show Sesame Street. There's also uh, a stand-up storyteller in you, and uh, you've got uh, a number of CDs out, uh, or you did have at one time, with your original stories. Now, your work in children's musicals included the longest-selling work for children in the world of sacred music. Titled It's Cool in the Furnace, it still holds popularity after over 40 years of performances. you want to tell us just a tiny bit about that? Oh, well... Um, I was asked by the publisher at that time, which was uh, Word Music, to do something for kids. This was when kids' musicals were just getting started. And I went looking. They were a biblical publisher, so they needed something with a religious background. And I went looking for a story in the Bible about kids and came across Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three boys that were thrown into the fiery furnace. And I thought, what better story than one with kids who end up being the heroes of the story? So that's kind of where it got started. And again, it's still being... It is still out there, which is just absolutely amazing. Uh, it's wonderfully amazing because I'm still getting royalty checks every once in a while. All right. Besides the writing, uh, you've also worked as a copy editor and a managing editor for books and magazines. Tell us some of those. Uh, I worked in New York City um, as a copy editor at Time Life Books. And um, part of this book, Crossing the Moss Line, is set in New York. Because when I first was there, I lived in the Bronx. And so the apartment that I describe in Crossing the Moss Line is actually the apartment that I lived in in the Bronx. Um, As far as um, magazine editing, I was the managing editor for Storytelling Magazine for quite a long time. Uh, I was, as you said, at one point what I call a stand-up storyteller, which is to make a differentiation because most people hear storyteller and they think children. But I didn't tell stories to children. I told stories to adults. But if I say I told adult stories, that has a whole different connotation. (laughs) So um, stand-up storyteller. But what I discovered when I started writing the novels was that was the best training I could possibly have had because you take your story directly to the audience 
and you get either instant gratification or instant boredom, but there's no question about whether you're putting your point across or not. And so you kind of um, you learn how to craft a story to keep people's interest, and that's been invaluable in sitting down at a computer and writing these books. Now, are you at all involved with magazines t- today, or are you pretty much settled in on being a novelist? I have given up magazines. I am pretty well settled into being a writer. I did um, edit a novel for a friend a couple of years ago. That was great fun. Um, it's lovely fun telling somebody else what they ought to do with their book. <laughs> um, but basically, yes, I'm c- concentrating on my writing. We mentioned the award-winning Shorter's Way. How is it doing? Uh, it's doing very well. Um, I must admit that I'm much better at writing than I am at promoting, um, but that's all part and parcel of being a writer these days. You you have to be your own PR department, own yeah. hence doing programs like this, which is wonderful. Well, winning the silver the silver medallion, Ippy, with Shorter's Way, is a pretty good way of doing that. Uh, that is still on the cover, that little medallion oh, yes. is still there. And okay. I have submitted Crossing the Moss, Moss Line um, to the same Ippy contest. Uh, we won't know anything about that until next year, but I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Um, good thoughts coming in that direction from the audience would be very nice and appreciated. Well, it's it's a very uh, highbrow award, but some of our listeners may not be aware of what Ippy actually is. Tell us what it is. It stands for Independent Publishers, and the awards are um, available, open to anyone that has um, self-published or worked with a small publisher. If you're one of the big five, if you've been published by one of the big five, don't bother. They don't, that's not what, that's not their target audience. Um, it's, it's a very nice recognition and a way for um, self-published authors and small presses to get recognition. That's that's really important. And it's a recognition that stays with you. Oh, yes. The nice thing is that once you've won an award, you can legitimately say from then on, I am an award-winning author. And it's like having written lyrics of Sesame Street. I've I've gotten more writing assignments off that one credit than probably anything else because people recognize the name. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's a credential. It It is a credential. It's a shingle hanging out there that says, I can do this. That's right. All right, let's talk uh, historical settings are important in your writing. They, They always seem to track that way. Your work is what most people would call period pieces. Our historic fiction, I found that's that's my category. They list thousands of categories. What's your category? Mine is historic fiction, which basically means my life is historic fiction. Well, Shorter's Way, you base that in Georgia in the 1920s. Right. Okay. Waterproof Justice, your second novel, was set in southern Louisiana back around 1946, I believe it was. Right. Uh, the backdrop there was mainly Angola and the Jackson State Mental Hospital. Your latest book, Crossing the Moss Line, takes us back to the 1940s again, but this time in the marshlands off the Georgia coast. Where did the idea for this story come from? That's a little bit hard to say. I I cannot tell you um, 
where I was last Wednesday, but my mind tends to retain very strange facts. Um, Somewhere in my past, I remember hearing or reading um, a story about a practical joke gone terribly wrong. And I can't tell you more about that because I'll give the plot away. But basically, that was the core that started this story. Um, J.K. Rowling can create a whole universe and did for Harry Potter. I need to have feet on the ground. I need to be in the place. I need to see what it looks like and what it smells like and what it feels like and sounds like. And so I wanted to bring the story back to Georgia, uh, but I didn't have a place. So um, my husband, Jim, and I decided we would drive south um, and go looking for a small town. Uh, we decided to go to uh, St. Simon's and make that our base of operations. And almost by accident, um, I discovered the Geechee people. Um, through my storytelling, I knew about the Gullah community because they have a rich tradition of storytelling. Um, but I discovered the Geechee people, and all of a sudden I had a, a direction for this story. And so they became... Um, a way to anchor the fictitious story in reality on Georgia's barrier islands. The Geechee are real. The island may not be. Again, this is historical fiction, and we put the emphasis on fiction. Uh, where We're going to talk more about that in a minute, but where can people find out more about you and your work? Uh, they can go to our website, which is www freethorn.com and the easy way to remember that is it's a combination of my name and my husband's name he's Jim Freeman I'm Grace Hawthorne and so it's freethorn.com if you go there you can read chapters of all three books for free Um, if you're interested in buying the book it's available on all of your favorite online bookstores. Very good. We're here this morning with Grace Hawthorne talking about crossing the Moss Line. We're going to be back after these messages. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. 
When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. And we're back. My name's Doug Dahlgren. We're here on the prologue this morning talking with Grace Hawthorne. She's brought us her third novel. Title is Crossing the Moss Line. And before we had to take our break, we were talking about where you can find out more about Grace and her novels. Let's go over that again, Grace. Give us that website one more time. Okay, the website is www.freethorn.com. Um, it's a combination of my husband's name, Freeman, and mine, Hawthorne. So it's F R E E T H O R N E. Com. Or you can go directly to the publisher and go to booklocker.com. And again, you can read, uh, you can read um, chapters for free and place your order all at the same time. Very good. Booklocker.com. Booklocker.com, yes. All of your books are through them? Uh, no. Uh, the Crossing the Moss Line is, Waterproof Justice is, Shorter's Way Go to our book. Go to our website, website? and it will direct you. Okay, very good, very good. Now we're talking about crossing the Moss Line, and uh, the people, the Geechee people, are very interesting people. They are real. They are very real. The, yes. Uh, the location may not be. I think you said that we kind of needed an island, so we made one up. Um, Ebo. Ebo. Uh, okay. The 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 island where the Geechee people still live was Sapelo. But when I was doing preliminary work for this, we when we were staying at St. Thomas, we took a tour to Sapelo Island, just again, because I need to have feet on the ground. Um, there is, an, uh, there is a, um, a mansion that was left from the um, glory days of the rice planters. It is, cu- I think, currently owned by the Reynolds Foundation. But I knew that if I talked about Sapelo Island and I mentioned the big house, people would immediately connect that to Reynolds, to the tobacco Reynolds family. And I, and it's not about that or them. So to protect everybody, I needed a name for this fictitious island. Um, there is a story about the Ebo the tribe, which was um, brought the captives were brought to one of the barrier islands and the people decided to jump overboard and drowned rather than become slaves and I thought that's the perfect tie-in and so I simply borrowed the name and called it Ebo Island. Very good. Um, the characters in this story, we talked about the Geechee people. Tell us a little bit of the background because again I I don't think it's widely known exactly where that name came from, the language. You were telling me earlier about that. Tell us a little bit about those people. Um, Okay. Um, I think maybe what I'll do is let one of the characters in the book tell you about that. Um, Granny is 
a direct descendant of the original captives that were brought to Ebo Island. And it's her job to keep the family history alive. And so in this excerpt, she's talking to her grandkids, daughter, uh, two, two kids, boy and a girl. Um, and she talks about the fact that two rice planters went to Sierra Leone and they bought a boatload of people. And she says, those slave traders didn't just take anybody you know. They wanted us because we knew about growing rice and cultivating long fiber cotton. Mr. Harding and Mr. Donegan ordered us just like you'd order a table or a jacket from Susan Roebuck. And we didn't come cheap, no, sir. They paid a pretty price for each one of us on that boat, and that's why they didn't never sell a single one of us because we was too valuable. That boatload of about a hundred souls was a start of the Geechee people. Um, Folks, that was Grace Hawthorne, just so you know, reading from her book, Crossing the Moss Line. The um, the hundred souls that Granny talks about were actually people from different tribes in Sierra Leone, and the slave traders simply gathered up free people, brought them in, sold them, and they were shipped to this country. That particular boatload of people came directly to Ebo Island, my island. Um, Therefore, they were never part of the general slave population. So they they kept their specific African ways in a way that a lot of the people who were were mixed in with the um, general slave population were not able to do. Um, there's a little excerpt in here, if I can find it right quickly. Um, so these people were, were a little bit different than the regular slaves who came through and just were transitioned over to the mainland and, and lived out their lives on the different plantations. That's right. They came directly from Sierra Leone to Ebo Island. Um, and, and pretty much stayed there. And uh, they are still there. Yeah. Um, part of... When I the the setting that I used in the forties in the forties there was still a functioning Geechee community on the island. That's not the case today. There are very few left. I think about seventy people maybe. But the sad part is that once um, the rice cultivation, once the Civil War came and slaves were freed, and there was no one to work the the rice fields. There's nothing else to do on the island. And so young people had to go off the island in order to earn a living. And when they did, there's no reason to come back. And what has happened in the intervening years is um, people now want to buy this property on this beautiful island. It's like St. Simon's and Jekyll, the same thing. Um, and when the descendants, the young descendants, are offered a good price for their land, it's very tempting to take that. And so they're losing the land that's been in their family since before the Civil War. But it's totally understandable that that's happening. And so um, when you get to the epilogue of this book, um, this is my my vision for what could have happened on the island if things had turned out differently. So don't miss the epilogue. And the thing is, you're going to get to the end of the book. ends on a right-hand page. Don't think that's the end. Turn the page 
because you're going to miss the best line in the book if you don't read the epilogue. Got to read the epilogue. And I'm not going to tell you what it is. Okay. Now, you read in the character of Granny. We mentioned Bird a little earlier. Uh, As usual with your work, the characters are what really draw and and keep the readers tied to what you're telling in this story. Uh, Is there any particular historical reference to any of these characters? Any tie-in? Uh, no. Uh, there, there is a, um, there is a visit from, um, I don't think I'm giving, spoiler alert, but I don't think this will make a difference. Um, FDR does come to visit the island, but he's the only real person, uh, that's mentioned in the island, uh, in the book. Um, there are, part of the story goes to New York, again, the places are real, but the people are fictitious. Crossing the Moss Line is uh, is an interesting title on its own. Tell us about that. How did you come up with that? Oh, uh, well, titles are hard. I either I don't know. I either come up with a great title right away, or I suffer through titles. Um, I knew that this book, because it's several stories woven together, it was hard to come up with one thing that that told about all those stories um okay i know i don't have a thousand times spent all the time to do this very quickly i grew up in louisiana in the part of the state that is covered with spanish moss right every once in a while it's gotten to be a joke around our household but i need a moss fix and so we get in the car and we drive south until we find moss, and then I'm happy. And we laugh about the fact that moss is very strange. It may grow on this side of the highway and not grow on that side of the highway. There's an invisible moss line. And so all of a sudden I thought, okay, that'll work. Moss is very identifiable with the south. Uh, so that tells people this is a southern story. It has some motion in it. Um, there are authorities that say you need to have a verb in a title because that makes people interested. Well, crossing the moss line has a, a, a motion to that, and there is a lot of crossing lines in this book, whether it's um, lines of, of making decisions where you've crossed a line between making a good decision and a bad decision. Um, it crosses the state lines in the part of the story takes place in New York City. Um, so it, it just worked. It's a good title. Very good title. Uh, do this for me. Those folks out there listening who were maybe sharpening those pencils or maybe realized the ballpoint wasn't working when we gave the uh, website away, do that again. Tell the folks one more time where they can find out more about you and all three of your books. Two places. You can go to our website, which is www freethorn.com that's f-r-e-e-t-h-o-r-n-e dot com or you can go directly to the publisher's website at booklocker.com either place you can read chapters for free and you can order the book directly from the publisher or you can order it from any of your favorite online bookstores and yes it is downloadable to whatever your electronic reading device all of those yeah We're here this morning with Grace Hawthorne. She's brought us Crossing the Moss Line. Her other two books, Shorter's Way and Waterproof Justice, also must-reads. We're going to be back with more from Grace after these messages.
When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. Who is or what is USJF? It is a nonprofit legal organization founded to protect our rights through the U.S. Constitution. Active in educating the public, USJF has also contributed directly and indirectly to legal defense efforts in many celebrated cases involving fundamental conservative principles. Cases of note include the Mount Soledad Cross case, the Arizona Immigration Law case, the Obama eligibility cases, the NDAA illegal detention issue, and many more. Help this nonprofit as they help you. Visit www.usjf.net today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And we're back on the prologue. My name is Doug Dahlgren. We're here this morning with Grace Hawthorne talking about her new novel, Crossing the Moss Line. Now, one of the... Uh, featured locations in Crossing the Moss Line, almost a character unto itself, is Dunnigan Hall. Uh, Now, it's a very interesting place. How did you research mansions of this type? you got to remember, I grew up in Louisiana, and um, we have plantations in Louisiana. Um, As a matter of fact, the, the little kernel of a fact about Dunnigan Hall in the little town that I lived in in Louisiana, I remember as a child the, hearing my f- parents talk about the fact that, that um, the sheriff had discovered that there were two old ladies living in a big old plantation house all by themselves, and basically they were starving to death. There was nobody to take care of them. And I told you, I remember things that just have no relevance to anything, but that stuck in my mind. And so when we got to Donegan Hall, I thought, okay, I know about that place. I know those two old ladies that lived there. Um, And they started out to just kind of be... um, Characters, because it was interesting that there was still part of the old rice plantation uh, culture on the island. But when I got to writing them, they sort of took over and said, hey, you know, what about us? You haven't mentioned us in a long time. We'd like to get back in the story. And so they end up being critical to what happens in the story, but you got to read the book to find out. <laughs> well, characters do that sometimes. Yes, they do. They'll wander away and make you go look for them or whatever, you know, but they, they want do. your attention. Now, the, the Dunnigan Hall, uh, 
it wasn't necessarily lost. I mean, people knew it was there, but it just wasn't being paid attention to. It was brought back to the attention of the community because of what you just described, the, the, the finding that there yes. were two elderly ladies who had basically lived there and all the uh, slaves or assi- assistance that they had was gone, and they were there subsisting on their own. They were well past slave days at that point, but the it was so typical of a certain age where the men took care of everything and when the father died papa when papa passed on and then brother took over and when he died they'd never done anything for themselves they've never paid a bill they'd never hired a yard man they'd never been off the island they didn't drive they didn't know they didn't past the point of having a carriage or something. They were simply there and basically living off um, what they had stored, what they had canned and had in the pantry. Now, Dunnigan Hall is fictitious, based on something real, but Ebo Island is fictitious where it's located. Um, But, of course, we're talking about the 1940s. Were there actually locations like that where the the area was so dense that people would actually forget that that house was there? It happened in Louisiana, so I guess it could have <laughs> happened off the coast of so Georgia. It's viable, oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right. They had no they had no electricity. Ebo Island at at the point in the story had no electricity. Uh, they didn't have phones. So the island, which is another... No internet. They were right. Uh, no cell phones. And so that's another reason that the Geechee people were able to keep their community um, so closely intact because you had to have a boat to get off the island. If you didn't own a boat, you didn't leave the island. Um, you had no way to communicate with the rest of the world. Um, so these old ladies are there. They have no electricity. They have gas, um, not gasoline, what were the kerosene lanterns kerosene. in the house, uh, wood stoves, big old cast iron wood stoves in the kitchen, um, no telephones, no contact. So it was easy to get lost in all of that. And they just stayed to themselves. They weren't part of the Geechee people. No, 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 no. They were the only white people living on the island. Okay. Now, you've chosen the 40s for this setting in this particular story. Why? This is twice you've gone there. <laughs> you really like that time period. Why it's, do you choose that? It's simpler. It's simpler. Um, it gives you a lot to work with in the fact that um, they didn't have Telephones. I mean, people on the mainland obviously had telephones, but there were people who living who did not have telephones. There were people who did not have electricity. Um, it slows it slows everything down. Um, it, you had um, travel was not as prevalent as it is today uh, on Ebo Island. It it says in the book you couldn't move any faster than a horse could move. There, there was one. There were two vehicles on Ebo Island. One of them was a tin Lizzie that some fraternity boy had gotten over there and forgotten about, it, and it's been on the island for until you know the book. Um, and there was one old pickup, but there were no paved roads on the island. Uh, working with the '30s and '40s, um, it's just easier, and it's what makes um, it gives me a. 
a category of letting people know what life was like back then. Excellent, excellent. The main character, I guess we could call him the protagonist in a way, although there's several characters that have large roles, but Bird. Tell us more about Bird and the inspiration for Bird. Um, Bird ended up being my favorite character. Um, He's a young boy. He's 12. He has lived on the island all his life. Um, He is a natural-born artist, um, which is important in the plot of the story. The problem with that is that I am not an artist. If I drew a picture of a house and a horse, I'd have to tell you which was which. So I needed to talk to somebody who was an artist, and I was lucky enough to meet Richard Clark, E. Richard Clark specifically, who is an artist. He lives here in Georgia. He's about the right age, younger than Bird would be if he were alive, but, you know, generally speaking, about the right age. Um, he, As I said, he grew up in the South. He's self-taught, um, and he has been drawing since he was a child. He said to me, which ends up being in the book, I knew from the time I was, that I was a child that I could draw anything I could see. Isn't that amazing? I could draw anything I could see. And so I took, Jim and I bribed Richard to come over to the house for dinner and so I could talk to him and sort of get um, into his head of how an artist sees the world, which is very different from the way the rest of us see. Mm -hmm. And that's what helped me make Bird real. Bird is the good guy in this story. He well, he is a good guy. He Let's is a good it. guy, yeah. So that means we've got to have a bad guy. <laughs> and that bad guy would obviously have to be Butch. Now, we don't want to tell or give away too much of the story, but what can you tell us about Butch? If Butch were alive today, somebody would put him on medication and he wouldn't be interesting anymore. Um Butch is one of those people, kids, because we start with him as a kid, who's just mischievous. He just, he doesn't, as again, I'm quoting someone in the book, he doesn't think past the end of his nose. Um, he does things that it's, that, it's those unintended consequences. He does things that are not terrible in and of themselves, but the consequences can be bad. I mean, he pulls a prank on the Baptist church when they're having a baptism, and he and his buddies go out and they pick all of the young, round watermelons, and they fill up the baptistry with watermelons with faces painted on them, which the Baptist preacher does not particularly think is very funny. But Butch just does... Mm-hmm. mischievous things but the, he finally crosses the line and and does um, does something again I don't want to give the plot away but he does something that has uh, that has very serious consequences yes. and part of the book is having to do with the consequences of what Butch thinks of yes and uh, you've got to read the story it's it's really worth worth the effort and uh, Okay, anyway. let me ask you a question. 
Okay. If Bird is my favorite character, who's your favorite character? I'd have to say uh, Butch's mom, Lucille. No, Lucille no. is not Butch's mom. I beg your pardon. Oh, Butch's mom. Yes, of course she is. Sorry. Thank you. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Wrong family. Yes, Lucille yeah. is definitely yes. Butch's mom. She uh, she's not necessarily a favorite character, but I guess she's one that you you love to hate because she develops and she becomes uh, kind of a nasty creature, really. Lucille was so much fun to write because Lucille says and does the things that all of us want to say and do and would never, ever, ever do. Um, Lucille, her family was poor, and she determines very early on that she does not want to be poor. She wants to be rich, not comfortable, but dirty, righty, filthy, stinking rich. And she spends her whole life working toward that goal. Um, which kind of like Butch gets her into things, unintended consequences. All the characters in this book, like all of your books, they just come to life. They're not just some caricature or anything like that. These people have flesh and blood, skin and bone. How do you manage to keep those people so real? I know them. I mean, I when I'm writing the book, I absolutely live with these people, for you know a year, I, every morning I get up, I go sit down at my computer, and I'm back in their world. Um, I, sometimes they're based on people that I know about. Um, Richard helped me base Bird on a, on the real experiences. Uh, the Donegan sisters, just because I uh, grew up around a lot of older women who lived on their own. Um, Mrs. Glandrock, who is a character in the Bronx in New York, um, Mrs. Glandrock is everybody's Jewish mama. Whether you're Jewish or not, everybody has a Jewish mama from time to time, and that's who she is. Well, I lived in New York for 13 years, and there's no way to live in New York without absorbing some of that culture. And so that's where Mrs. Glansrock came from. Um, I, I don't know, just uh, characters, characters um, as you said, they can get away from you. They develop on their own. If you kind of get them If you're doing off, it right. If you get them off to a good start, yep. they will develop on their own. Um, yes. There's a part in the book where um, the Donegan sisters get a chance to get out of the house and go, they're, they're um, taken to see a schoolhouse. And, but instead of being brought home, they say, we don't want to go home. We want to see the island. Well, they've lived on the island their whole lives. But I thought, here are these old ladies who've never been able to get out of the house, and so they want to go to the beach. They've never been to the beach since they were little girls. So they get taken to the beach and they take off their shoes and their thick black stockings and they roll up their skirts and they go wade in the water. I mean, it's just, I didn't tell them to do that. They just did it. So I wrote it down like they did it. The uh, research for this book must have been fun. How many trips did uh, did you tell Jim we just have to go to St. Simon's? one of the tricks that I do when I go on a hearse, we take lots and lots and lots of pictures. And I haunt bookstores. 
and I go to libraries, and I try to bring home as much research as I can, and then I hope this is not any inappropriate, but I love Google. <laughs> um, because I can sit. Um, do I have a minute here? To no, we don't. We're going to pick that up, though, when okay. we come back. Okay. We're here with Grace Hawthorne, and we're going to be back to finish this story after these messages. This is Dr. George from Peachtree ENT Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because we believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individual. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing, have frequent throat or sinus infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you'll be treated as an individual and not as an ailment. During your visit, you will not be rushed and all your questions will be answered. When possible, natural treatments will be recommended to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And we're back. We're here on the prologue this morning with Grace Hawthorne. And those of you who've been holding your breath wanting to hear the end of that story, (laughs) we're going to get right back to it. We were talking about your research and Google. And during the break, you mentioned something that you discovered in your research to do with the Marine Corps. Be sure okay. to include that, would you? Okay. Very cool. The, the lovely thing, the lovely thing about Google is that I don't have to stop what I'm doing, go find my car keys, and go to the library to get an answer. I was working on a section in New York City. And, I mean, I wasn't in New York City, but I was writing about New York City. And I put in my computer, and they grabbed their tokens and went to the subway. And I thought, hmm, I wonder if they used tokens in in the 40s. So I went to Google. And, of course, Google knows everything. And Google said, no, they did not. And here's the way it went. In the 40s, the fare on the New York subways was a nickel. When they started, it was a nickel. Then the fare went up to a dime. And they reconfigured the toll booth, the coin slots, to take a dime. Then the fare went up to 15 cents, and they couldn't reconfigure it to take two coins, so they went to tokens. But they didn't do that till way after this book. So I could say they took their nickels and went to the subway because there were no tokens. And it's that kind of thing that if you get it wrong, somebody is going to know that that wasn't right. Oh, yes. 
Um, same thing about um, there was a radio uh, program um, back in the 40s called Grand Central Station. It was a great, great story. And I mentioned it in the book. And, oh, gee, I don't have time to talk about that either. But anyway, okay, I mentioned Grand Central Station, and I have a group of beta readers. And one of my beta readers said, no, no, no. The real name is Grand Central Terminal. But I, having lived in New York, I realized that nobody ever refers to it as either. either. They just call it Grand Central. But I changed it, or I, or I explained that in the book, so that some New Yorkers are not going to read that and say, well, she doesn't know what she's talking about because there is no such thing as Grand Central Station. Um, very quickly, let's see if I can get this in about the other. I find wonderful um, jewels, just absolutely unpolished jewels in doing research. In the book, um, this was wartime. Mm-hmm. We had soldiers going in every direction. It was hard to get passage on a train because the passage was given first to the soldiers who were being sent to different places. Sure. Okay, so um, that the soldiers play a part in this, and I needed um, a character, a, a soldier, a black soldier. So I went to do research to see if there were any training facilities up and down the East Coast. Camp Lejeune discovered that there were segregated training facilities at Camp Lejeune, and the first um, group of Marines to be graduate, black Marines to be graduated happened to coincide with exactly the time frame that I was working on in the book. And so that was a nice little piece of history. I didn't know anything mm-hmm. about that. Um, Got to include that. And so this character that was just kind of a nobody, all of a sudden he had a backstory of everybody at that point was either joining up or getting drafted. And if you joined, you got to choose. And because just at that particular time frame, the Marines hadn't hadn't accepted black soldiers up until then. But Roosevelt changed the law, and the Marines said, yes, we'll do that. But they still had separate training facilities, but they graduated the first class. And so my character was one of the first Marines to graduate from Camp Lejeune. And I, that was just a little jewel that I found absolutely oh, by yeah. accident. Yeah. There's a lot of surprises in this book. A lot of twists and turns. Did you know when you started how this story would play out? Um, okay, I told you it wrapped around this um, practical joke that went very wrong. Right. I knew how that was going to end. I, I knew how that was going to be resolved. But then I have all these other characters, and they all have stories of their own. Other plot lines. Um, the the Geechee community is about to lose their property. I didn't even know that was happening when I started to write the book. Um, so the answer to that is I knew part of it, but I didn't know all of it. And that, to me, is the magic of writing, that you yes. get in there and and you let it develop, and I'm, it surprises me sometimes. Oh, yes. Writing a book can be as much fun, if not more, than reading it sometimes. I think so. <laughs> yes, yes. What was the hardest part for you of writing this particular story? The hardest part for me, 
always is description. I I can write dialogue. Just it's easy. It just happens. Because when I was a kid, um, I was an only child, so I ended up um, making up games and uh, characters and stuff and talking to. I talk to myself. What can I tell you? Um, but but description is hard for me. And um, there is a writer, Southern writer. His name is Rick Bragg. And he writes some of the most beautiful description I've ever read. So when I get to the point where I have to describe something, I go back and I read Rick Bragg. And I try to say, okay, if if he can describe this woman as a woman who makes biscuits too good for this world, I can come up with some interesting way to describe moss, for heaven's sake. Um, that's always the hardest for me is, is writing description, which is why I come home with as much research as I can about how does it, how does the place feel and smell and and um, what do you hear when you're in that place and all of that kind of stuff. Now, as your process goes through and you're working on the book, who do you use as your proofreaders, your beta testers? Okay, so there's a difference. Beta beta readers are not proofreaders. I don't care where the camera comments go. I mean, of course I do, but that's not their job. Okay. Um, this is a group of women that have worked with me. Um, they read Shorter's Way. They invited me to come to their book club. They asked great questions, and I said, would you like to be part of the creative process? And they said, yes. And so what I do, what I did with um, Waterproof Justice and with this, I give them um, a manuscript when it's about three-quarters of the way finished. They have to read it, not like a proofreader, but like a reader. They fill out a one-page questionnaire, and then they meet with me again, and they tell me what they think. And believe you me, they tell me what they think. Um, And they... The Grand Central thing, one of the women said, it's not Grand Central Station, it's Grand Central Terminal. Um, another one said, you've written about wartime and you have people buying new cars. Nobody bought a new car during wartime because there were not any new cars during wartime. Um, they're just great. They, they Writing is so solitary, and we writers have a tendency to think that everything we write is divinely inspired and therefore should not be changed. Um, but but they give me a touch with re- they touch with reality. Um, Help the context. Absolutely. Keep it, keeping it real. Yes, absolutely. Yes. What is in the pipeline? Have you oh, got number four going? No. No. <laughs> Everybody says that. It's like, my goodness, I'm trying to promote the one I just did. Um, we, Jim and I, have made a couple of trips trying to come up with maybe an idea for something else. Um, well, that I, sounds good. As I, long as you can keep Jim on the road, we can look <laughs> forward to coming up with more stories. Well, I'm trying to, to stay in Georgia. That's one thing. Um, so uh, there are a couple of interesting – and I try to, to anchor the story in some piece of reality. Uh, the Geechee people were wonderful. They they were real. They are real. They're still here. They're trying to still still trying to hang on to their property and their their culture. Um, waterproof justice. Uh, New Orleans is real. Um, Angola Penitentiary is definitely real. And so I I always look for something that I can hook my fictitious story to 
some piece of reality that grounds it, that gives it roots into the to the into the ground. So you're not through yet, but you're just you're, you're not quite settled. No, but if anybody's got a great story that they think ought to write, just give me a call. Okay, very good. Well, listen, we're getting close to the end here. What, before we close this down, have we left out today that you just need to be sure is brought out? Goodness gracious, I don't, I don't think anything. Um, I really don't think anything I would like to, um, as you did at the beginning, give a shout-out to our troops. Thank you. Um, it's... As they say, we we are free because somebody else is out there fighting for it. Yes, ma'am. Um, Jim was in Vietnam. Um, it's been very nice, considering the reaction that he got when he came back from that war. That that's completely changed, and he has a, a cap with the ribbon on it. And it's not unusual at all for people to come up and say thank you for your service. And it's not just the guys his age; it's the young people. And they will come up and say, thank you for your service. So to all of you out there, thank you for your service. That's the best way I can think of to bring this thing to a close. Thank you for that. Uh, Again, the new book, folks, is Crossing the Moss Line with author Grace Hawthorne. Grace, I want to thank you very much for being here today. It's just been an absolute pleasure. And good luck with this great novel. We hope that everybody listening is going to get out there and order their copy today. Thank you very much. All right. Listeners, Tell all your folks about our show, please, and how they can listen to the free podcast by simply clicking on the links at americaswebradio.com. And if you would like to be a guest on the prologue or a friend, talk to them. Tell them to email me at doug at americaswebradio.com or doug at dougdahlgren.com, and we'll work that out. Now, for this hour, thanks again to my guest, Grace Hawthorne. From myself and Grace, I want to say be good to yourselves and each other. Read a book. If it's not one of Grace's, maybe you'll pick one of mine. And I'll see you all again in 167 hours. Take care. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.